0: Our Heavenly Father, we just pray for your help this morning. We pray as we come and approach and engage with what to many of us will seem quite a stretching section of your scriptures. We pray for your help. We pray that you would make things clear to us. We pray that you would give us understanding and encouragement. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. i well, please do sit down. And as you uh, sit down, if you could be turning back to Revelation chapters 8 and 9 that we had read to us earlier. Uh, you'll find that on page 1,239 in the Church Bibles. Uh, there's also a, an outline in amongst the, the uh, bundle of stuff that you'll be give, given on the way in. Uh, you might like to uh, refer to that as we go through. Now, as you will have experienced for yourself over the last week, much of the UK has been battered by severe winds. So gusts have been measured um, quite nearby, up to and 112 miles per hour in the Pennines. lorries have been thrown about on the roads. Wind turbines have spontaneously exploded in Scotland. Uh, On a more personal level, when I've asked people how their Christmas break has been, as as you do at this time of year, um, it seems that a good 80 or 90% of of people who who responded to that have said that that either they or someone in their family have been ill over that time, and uh, many are still ill. So a great many of us, in other words, have started the new year in some sort of pain or discomfort. And some of us will have started the new year on an even lower note. For some, this will be a whole new year without someone we dearly loved. As a church family, death has been a very sober feature of 2011, and we can expect grief to feature strongly in 2012. In other words, it's all a bit depressing Perhaps it's understandable we might choose not to dwell on such things at this time of year. Perhaps it would be understandable today to curl up with a Sunday paper and immerse ourselves in the fantasy world of fresh starts and fitness programs and new resolutions. But What I hope we're going to see this morning is that if we do that, we might well find ourselves missing something very important and significant about the things that we're suffering. This is one of the great insights of C.S. Lewis. He was writing 70 years ago in the midst of the, the deep suffering of the Second World War. And his insight was that God can use the gloomy things of life to attract our attention. This is what he said. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And this morning, I think we're going to see that C.S. Lewis was onto something. Pain is indeed one of the ways in which God shouts to us, uh, although as we'll see, it's not the only way. Indeed, pain is, we might say, it's even more than a megaphone. It's a trumpet blast. It's a warning siren. But we're going to see something else too. What... C.S. Lewis didn't quite say is that the world is deaf to God for a reason. It has put its hands over its ears to what God is saying so that it can get on with life without him. And as such, the condition of the world is, is actually far worse than Lewis dared admit. The world is so deaf to God, in fact, that it can even ignore pain. Now, it's over a year now since we looked at the book of Revelation as a, as a church family. So if, you, if you weren't here then, or if that's a very distant memory to you, you may well have found our reading from Revelation chapters 8 and 9 this morning a bit of a shock. And, and certainly if this is your, your first time at a church meeting, if you don't know, know the Bible very well, uh, you may even be feeling a little alarmed at the moment, uh, wondering what on earth you've got yourself uh, mixed up in. But although of all the books in the Bible, Revelation might seem to us the most foreign and, and difficult, I want to claim it, that at heart it's actually quite simple. I want to claim that the book of Revelation has a very simple purpose that we can readily identify with. But what we find, and what we found in the, in the first chapters of the book, when we were looking at this before, it, is that this is a message from, from the risen Jesus uh, to John uh, for a purpose, for him to write down and to pass on to the churches of his day to encourage them and support them. But why? Why why is all that happening? Well, listen first to how John describes himself at the beginning of the book. This is from chapter 1 and verse 9. He says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and impatient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is the person who's relaying this vision to us. Here then is someone who stands alongside us in Christian suffering what's more he wants us to stand alongside him as he patiently endures and witnesses to Jesus and that is pretty much the purpose of the message that he's given to pass on patient endurance and witness under suffering patient endurance and witness under suffering in fact we see that very clearly in the way the book begins it's a series of letters to the churches from Jesus, in which Jesus encourages them to hold on to what they have, and to the one who overcomes the suffering that they're experiencing, Jesus promises life. So when we get to the the more difficult parts of the book, the vision that begins in Revelation chapter 4, we should be expecting something similar to that, something that's going to support that. But I guess this is where the difficulty of the book makes itself felt. The basic purpose of the book may be clear and simple, but we have to admit that how Jesus has chosen to achieve that purpose is, uh, for 21st century years at least, uh, an unexpected method, and it does require some very careful reading. Let me just say two very quick things about how we're going to go about that this morning and and in the weeks to come. The first is that if we stand alongside John in all this, if we see what he sees and hear what he hears, if we immerse ourselves into that experience as we read it, then we won't go uh, far wrong in all this. Remember who this vision is from. It's from the risen Lord Jesus. And remember, this is given for John's encouragement and endurance. And uh, if he's encouraged in the end to endure, uh, then so will we. The second thing to say is that as we return from this vision uh, to Fullwood in 2012 and think about how it relates to us, um, well, let's ask some obvious questions as we do that. And I've put a list of those on the, on the handout, the sort of questions that we might ask as we try to understand this. So questions like, what's obvious here in the big picture of what's being shown to us? Uh, what are the details of the vision add to that? How specific or general is, is this? How does it relate to the world that I know? Uh, so in the end, why is Jesus showing this to John? And why is John showing it to us? So that's the kind of approach we're going to take. And those are the questions we're going to ask as we engage uh, with this vision in Revelation 8 and 9. Before we do that, though, let's begin with how these two chapters connect with the chapter's Around them, Let's think about the the big picture, and I'm thinking here, especially the big picture of Revelation uh, chapters 8 through to 11. And I want to show you how chapters 8 and 9 in the vision are, in fact, preparing the way for something that comes later. They're preparing the way for chapters 10 to 11. So take a look at chapter 8 and verse 1 with me. When he, and as we heard earlier, that is uh, the Lord Jesus, the, the Lamb who was slain... When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this itself is a, is a climax of a sequence that began back in chapter 5. Uh, back in chapter 5, we were shown a scroll. It was written by God himself for his people, and it's been sealed with seven seals. This scroll is clearly very important, central to the whole message of the vision. And only the risen Jesus... Only the Lamb who has been slain has proved himself worthy to open these seals. And he's opened these seven seals one by one, and many things about the world have been uncovered as he's done so. And now here, chapter 8, verse 1, the final seal has been opened. Uh, So not surprisingly, there is an expectant hush. Uh, You might like to know that a half hour in the book of Revelation is an incomplete period of time. So we're waiting for something. We're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for something to be said. But Verse 2, before we hear what's on the scroll, seven angels are given seven trumpets. You might know from the Old Testament that trumpets are very often used to warn people. Uh, They were used uh, to warn the people of Judea to flee from coming destruction and judgment, for example. And uh, so it is uh, we shall find here. We're going to see that the first six trumpets here do indeed issue an advance warning. Uh, Well, next week we'll see that the seventh trumpet, trumpet heralds the very final judgment of the world. But here's the crunch. Here's how these chapters work. The first six trumpets are not enough warning for the world. That's the surprising thing that we're going to see this morning. And you can see that if you glance over the page uh, to chapter 9 and verse 20. This is at the end of, of the six trumpets. This is the effect that they have. And you'll see, verse 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. These are advanced warnings before the final trumpet, before the scroll is read. But they are not enough. The trumpets sound. Things happen in the world. But the world does not repent. The surprising conclusion we're going to reach is this. That what happens in these chapters is indeed a wake-up call from God. But it's not enough on its own to change people's minds about him. We are only going to find out what is enough next week. Because that's when we find out what's written on the scroll. In other words, the first six trumpets emphasize just how important it is to listen to what's written on that scroll. That's for next week. Uh, For the moment, let's learn all that we can from these first six trumpets, beginning with uh, trumpets at numbers 1 to 4, the wake-up call of natural disaster. Uh, We're in uh, verses 7 to 12 of chapter 8. Listen and look with me. be amazed. As elsewhere in the vision given to John, to depict this in a film would take a a, a good deal of CGI and a very vivid imagination. You'd also need an IMAX cinema, I think, and a very powerful sound system. The soundtrack would be very simple, uh, but very loud. Four enormous trumpet blasts from heaven, heralding four kinds of disaster sent upon the earth. The first blast heralds some extraordinary weather made up of hail and fire and blood with only one purpose, to destroy. The second blast heralds a disaster like you might have seen in one of those asteroid films that were very popular a few years ago, a mountain-like rock crashing into the sea. The third heralds a falling star which poisons the water supply with wormwood or absinthe. It's It's a dark green oil. It was once used to kill intestinal worms. And the fourth blast heralds a darkening of the world, a dimming of the lights. I once made a very serious movie-going error and uh, took my son to see the second Transformers film. Um, It was um, non-stop bangs and CGI flashes. It was rather like, uh, in fact, two and a half hours of being hit over the head uh, repeatedly and alternately with a drum and a torch. In other words, it wasn't particularly... Pleasant experience, and it was an utterly meaningless drivel as a story. <laughs> now, John's vision is also very vivid, and graphic, and loud, but in contrast, is thankfully short and sharp. But the question is, can we make any sense of what it means? Well, yes, I think uh, we can. I'm going to use the, those four questions that I introduced to you a little earlier. Question one on our list: What's obvious in the big picture across these scenes? Well, it's clear that these disasters encompass the whole creation, earth and sea. They encompass what's needed for created life to persist. They, they affect the water and the light. But what happens is not a creative act. In fact, if you would call it anything at all, you might call it a de, decreation, uncreation. The ability for earth and sea to sustain life is taken away. The water and light needed for life at... Are taken away. But note carefully, none of these things are taken away entirely. You can see that repeated across the four scenes a third of the earth, a third of the sea, and so on. In short, it looks like the, the creation is being unmade by its creator, but not entirely unmade. Question two what about the details? Well, the details here help us to see the purpose of all this. Because the details show us that these are very much like the plagues brought by God God on Egypt at the Exodus uh, from right at the beginning of the Bible. Because those two were were plagues of uh, of hail and lightning, water turned to blood and made undrinkable, darkness engulfing the land. This is very similar, isn't it? But what's interesting about the Exodus plagues, in the Exodus plagues, we're told explicitly why God is doing these things. Uh, for a nation who 's refused to know Him, for Egypt and, and for Pharaoh in leading it, the Lord is doing th- these things so that they th- would know that He is the Lord. that 's something that they were denying, and the plagues were there to show them the truth. So it makes sense to suppose that the reason behind these similar disasters that 's the reason behind these similar disasters in Revelation chapter eight. Question three, but how does that relate to the world that I know? or you know, well, What events or events in space and time and history do this, does this refer to or relate to? Well, the vision seems to be stressing that this is not a local, isolated event um, like the Exodus plagues. These are global events. That seems to be emphasized very strongly. It also, it also doesn't make much sense to suppose that this is just about the distant future. Uh, you can ask me later why Uh, I think we can be sure about that. It makes most sense in the end to take this as as figurative or or metaphorical language. In other words, this is a a colorful and special way of talking about events that we're actually quite familiar with. That is, the natural disasters of a broken creation. Events that have indeed affected the whole of the earth right across history and not just at a, a specific time. So why are we being shown this? Why is Jesus showing it to John? Why is John showing it to us? Well, first, I guess, so that we can interpret such events rightly as a trumpet call from God to a world with its hands over its ears. 2011, for example, was a year full of unprecedented and unpredicted natural disasters, uh, I suppose, like any other year Think of the earthquake in Christchurch in February, or the tsunami in Japan in March, floods and mudslides in Australia, Brazil, and the Philippines. Huge numbers of natural disasters. 2012 will no doubt be just as full. So let's uh, resolve now to respond rightly to those events, not just with grief and sympathy, although that's right, of course, but hearing the trumpet call in all of this, the trumpet call which says to a world refusing to acknowledge its creator, I am the Lord. And of course, as I said earlier, there's another reason why we'll be showing this, to know that such events are not enough. They're not enough to change people's minds about God on their own. However, of course, we're not done yet. Clearly, we haven't seen anything yet, in fact. So look at verse 13 and, and listen to the, what the eagle says. There are three more trumpets to sound. Woe, woe, woe! There's worse to come in other words. Perhaps these trumpets will be enough to rouse the earth. Trumpet number five heralds the wake-up call of pain. This trumpet blast is followed by another star falling from, the earth to, from heaven to earth. This one unlocks a vertical shaft, That leads down to the abyss, the underworld, the place of death and destruction. As the shaft is opened, a a giant column of smoke blasts up into the air. And from the smoke comes a swarm of locusts, vicious locusts, with a severe sting like that of a scorpion. But they do not sting everyone, only those without the seal of God, his mark of protection, uh, you can see there. In other words, only those opposed to God. And although the torment is severe and long, the torment is limited to five months. Now, you can see that these are truly grotesque locusts. This is a bit like uh, a scene from the, the film Toy Story, if you've ever seen that. Uh, if you haven't seen it, let me just dis- describe some of the background. In Toy Story, there are two boys living next door to each other, Andy and Sid. Uh, Andy's bedroom in the film is, is described by the filmmakers as what you might call toy heaven. Uh, but next door, there's Sid's room and uh, bedroom, and that's toy hell. And what Sid does to his toys is to smash them to pieces, and he rebuilds them into bizarre hybrid toys from all the different parts. And when we meet those hybrids in the film, it is actually quite a, a genuinely unsettling moment. And if you have young children who've watched Toy Story, you'll, you'll find them kind of falling about in tears at, at that time. Well, these locusts, unleashed by the fifth trumpet, are a little like that. They're part horse they're part human, they're part lion, they're part military machine, and they're part scorpion. And their leader is called Apollyon, or destruction. It's all quite deliberately the stuff of nightmares. But what's obvious here, taking the scene as a whole, it's obvious that this is, this is all about pain. Look at verse 4. The locusts are sent or allowed to torture. It's about suffering agony. It's about torment. Verse ten. What's more, this is a widespread, but restricted and selective pain. So, we, so, as we saw with the first four trumpets, the locusts can affect any part of the world, but they are not permitted to kill, and they are not—they're only permitted to hurt for a limited time, and they're also restricted. Verse four to those who do not have the seal of God. Now, the purpose of this pain is implied by the details. The, the hybrid locusts are not, very obviously, not creation as it was meant to be, but creation distorted, mixed up with the destructive underworld, and given over to its influence. As before, to those who oppose the Creator, creation is shown unraveling. This is what happens. God is saying, when you turn away from me, when you turn away from your creator, this is how the creation will unravel. So why are we being shown all this? Well, it does help us to understand that the part of the purpose of pain, it may not be the only purpose of pain, but it's certainly part of it as a trumpet call from God to a world with its hands over its ears. But also, again, it helps us to To know that even pain is not enough. People understandably turn to many things in desperation when they're in pain. But how many people in that situation change their minds about God? A few maybe, but for the most part, very, very few. Perhaps we should set up an e-petition on all of this. An e-petition for big warning labels on boxes of painkillers, rather like the ones that we have on packets of cigarettes. And perhaps the warnings could say something like this. Please stop. It may be right for you to take this painkiller. But before you take it, pause to consider what your pain is telling you. It is telling you that you are not God, that you are not the center of the universe, you are not in control. It is strongly implying that there is a God who is in control and he's acting now to attract your attention. That would be great, wouldn't it? However, somehow I doubt such a petition would get very far. But there's one last trumpet to try before the final trumpet. Trumpet number six. Trumpet number six. The wake-up call of death. Death. When the sixth trumpet sounds, four special angels or, or messengers are, who have been kept for this very moment, in fact, are unbound. They've been kept at the river Euphrates, the river that runs from Babylon, the past enemy of God's people and, and the source of much past destruction. But that's not all that John hears about. He also hears the number of demonic cavalry at the disposal of these messengers of Dune. It is Literally, a double myriad of myriads, an incalculable number. And if you thought the demonic locusts we'd just been talking about were bad, well, these are far worse. They have the colors of war and death. They are part horse, part lion, part serpent. And they breathe out the air of the underworld, fire, smoke, and sulfur. One of them will be terrifying enough. But a double myriad of myriads taking death to the four corners of the earth is almost unimaginable. And again, the big idea here seems to be quite clear. These hybrid monsters are agents of death. That is, they are agents of something which is, in many ways, the opposite of creation. Death is creation completely Unraveled for us. Uh, and I think the details here confirm it. The hybrid monsters show, in, show us something entirely alien to the creation as it should be. These are, if, these are more like figures of Greek mythology or something like that. And as before, their, their influence is widespread here to the four corners of the earth. It's widespread, but again, it's limited. Not everyone dies. So why are we being shown this? Well, it does help us to understand that part of the purpose of death, it's not the only purpose of death, but it's part of the purpose of death. It's a trumpet call from God to a world with its hands over its ears. It's rather like the purpose of pain, but now taken to a whole new level. This is ultimately what happens, God is saying, when you turn away from me and devote yourself to something else. I am the source of life. Turn away from me. And this is what you get. But also, again, it helps us to know that even seeing death is not enough. At a funeral, I guess there are multiple tragedies going on. There's the central tragedy, of course, the death itself and, and the deep, inconsolable grief of those closest to the person who's died. But there's very often a wider tragedy going on as well, especially among those who are more distantly connected to the person who's died. When I go to a funeral, I'm, I'm often hoping, praying, that surely, surely this will be enough to get the unbelievers amongst the, those, those people uh, to face up to their own mortality. We often think, don't we, what a, what a great opportunity a funeral is for the gospel. But actually, so often, no. And, and you can see it written on people's faces. And, and, and what you're seeing is, is not really grief. There might be some sadness there, but mostly it's just Nothing. It's a blank. What these people are seeing just doesn't compute for them. And they've completely put the shutters down and are blocking it out. So this is the conclusion. The condition of the world is far worse than we might have thought. The world is so deaf to God that it can ignore just, not just pain, but even death itself. And I do want us this morning so to just grasp the, the shocking enormity of that. Uh, you might glance down at some of the things that uh, John mentions in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. Those, those things, those things, the, the, the work of our hands, the worshiping of demons, the idolatry, those things are so powerfully attractive that not even being confronted with death can pull people away from them. Look at the list again. You might not, you might not be able to identify with some of it. Worshipping demons and magic arts, for example. Uh, although plenty in the ancient world, and, and even many today, would find those things a snare and a trap. You might look at that list and think to yourself, well, kind of more sophisticated than that. But the essence of this list should be familiar to us. It's the, the compulsive attraction to that which is not God or not of God. And what we're seeing here, that this is, this is more mind-numbing than alcohol. It's more addictive than cocaine. What we're seeing in this vision, that it's impossible to pull ourselves away from these things, even when God is blowing a trumpet blast in our ears. One commentator rightly summarizes the message of the six trumpets like this. In the end he says the lure of spiritual promiscuity is stronger than the threat of torture and death from demonic locusts and satanic monsters of the deep. I do hope that makes you uh, want to hear more. I do hope it makes you uh, want to come back and hear what's written on the scroll uh, to find out the one thing that can change people's minds about God. That would be worth hearing about, would it not? Uh, So please come back back next week for more on that. And if you are new to all these things, please do come back later in, in the month to the Christianity Explored course to kind of follow up that even further. But as we finish, I want to to leave us with this implication of what we've seen this morning. John was to pass this vision on to churches that in some ways were lapsing into some of the things that are mentioned in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Some were lapsing back into the magic arts, into idolatry and sexual immorality. And John will know that this vision built around the trumpets will be very helpful for those churches. You see, it will remind them just what it is like to be caught up in those things. It will bring before them the sheer horror being so wrapped up in in a godless desire like this. It will make them fear again, being entrapped by it, rendered deaf and insensitive to it. What a horrible, horrible condition to be in. The trumpet blast of God in your ears and no response. So, if you're feeling battered as 2012 begins, take heart and listen to the message of the six trumpets for your patient endurance. If you're feeling ill or in pain or discomfort, take heart. If you're confronting grief or the the prospect of grief, take heart. Listen to what God is reminding you of. He's reminding you through these things that you are not God. You are not in control. Only he is. And only he is worth turning to. Certainly as you face those things. Do not pity yourselves. At least you're alive to the pain. Pity those not feeling battered. It's those who have become insensitive to the trumpet call of God who deserve the greatest pity. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would uh, move our hearts and minds through this vision and get us to be realistic about the kind of world that we live in and uh, the desperate condition that it is in and the horror of not being able to hear you through the things that are happening around us. We pray that we will be repelled by the idea and as we face suffering ourselves, to turn only to you. But we beg for this broken world to hear you some other way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.